Hi, I'm Patrick McBriarty. And I'm Christopher Lynch. And together, we are the hosts of Windy City Historians. We will share and discuss Chicago history. And some great Chicago stories. Sponsored by Rapunzel. R-A-P-U-N-Z-L. Created by two high school friends toward improving financial literacy with simulated financial trading competitions and scholarships. Rapunzel creates excitement and encourages financial education. Check out their free mobile app and the interviews of Brian and Miles in the press. R-A-P-U-N-Z-L. No E. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Windy City Historians podcast, episode 21, The Third Star, part three. And of course, Patrick, when we're talking about the third star, we're referring to the fantastic Chicago flag, which has four stars. The first star represents the Battle of Fort Dearborn. The second star represents the Great Chicago Fire. And the third star on the flag represents the Columbian Exposition. So anyway, let's get into this episode, the third star, part three. Paul DeRica is the director of exhibitions at the Newbury Library. Right. And then also Jeff Nichols. Jeff Nichols is one of my favorite writers in The Reader. Of course, we talked to him in, in great detail in episode 19 regarding being a tourist at the World's Fair. And for those who aren't familiar with the Chicago Reader, it's the one last remaining independent newspaper in Chicago that comes out once a week. And they will do in-depth research and articles about various Chicago things. And we've been lucky enough to interview a couple authors from the Reader. That's the sort of quality writing that they specialize in. And you can get the Reader online, so you can check that out whether you're in Chicago or not. In any event, we, there's no sponsorship involved. We just like what they produce. Let's get into finishing up our conversation with Paul Derica. Favorite places to visit? Had he been able to go back in time? Some of the implications of the fair and how the fair itself is still relevant today. Also, we'll have a few snippets from Jeff Nichols here and there. Let's do it. Let me ask you, Paul, if you could go in a time machine and go to the World's Fair, where would you go first? Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> that is really hard. I would um, I have to do the Ferris wheel, to be honest, because I just I can't imagine still to this day what that would have looked like, just being that high when you were at the very top of it and then one of those cars and then having that view. I guess today, I mean, we can go into things like the, you know, the Sears Tower or something and maybe get a similar experience. But like what that must have been like in 1893 to just be so high above the world. I, yeah, I would want to, I'd want to take in that view first. Patrick, what would you do? I tend to be a macro person. I like the big picture. So I would have to stroll around the whole thing very quickly and then figure out what I was going to go back to and spend more time on. I'll tell you what I would do. I would probably not even go to the fair first. I'd go catch the Wild Bill's Wild West show. <laughs> oh, which technically wasn't in the fair. I think it was outside of the grounds. I would see the reenactment of Custard's Last Stand. Boy, that would be unbelievable. That's right. With some of the Indians that were actually at Custard's Last Stand, they were in Wild Bill's show. Yeah, that would be interesting. 
And then I'd sneak back and I'd want to see that great promenade, Court of Honor, at night, I think would be especially incredible. Oh, speaking of which, there's that statue that is oh, yeah. in the center of the court, and it still sits in Jackson Park today, right right on Hayes Drive. And I've driven by it many times this summer. Tell a little bit about that, Paul, if you could. So that's a, a reproduction. And it's huge. It's a massive statue. Right. And what's interesting is that's about 25 feet tall. Okay. The original that stood in the lagoon was 64 feet tall. Wow. So that statue was erected to mark the 25th anniversary of the fair, 1918. And it doesn't stand where that statue originally stood. So it stands basically where the administration building was, which was kind of like the nerve center of the World's Fair. It's, you know, near where Grover Cleveland pushed the button that, you know, started everything up at, at the World's Fair. And that's, that statue's right by the golf course, the Jackson Park golf course, just to give people a sense. Right. Yeah. The sculptor was Daniel Chester French. So today, Daniel Chester French is best remembered for having done the, the Lincoln sculpture at the, the Lincoln Memorial. In Washington, D.C. Right. Yeah. Wow. Very cool. Paul, I was in uh, New England a while back, and I got a chance to tour Augustus St. Gaudens private studios. And of course, he was very influential with the statuary of the World's Fair. Uh, it was a real treat to see copies of some of the statues that were at the World's Fair. They're magnificent. Mm-hmm. He did a lot of work there. And then today, I mean, for Chicagoans, I mean, he's probably best known for the sculpture of Lincoln in, in Lincoln Park. Which supposedly people that knew Lincoln said is the most realistic Lincoln. So is your favorite story about the fair changing then every time you retell it? Or do you have a favorite? I don't, that's a good question. There's certain ones that I I like a lot. I mean, one I didn't, I haven't told so far today is what happened after the fair closed. So we talked about, um, you know, how there was that economic crisis. And then later, a lot of the buildings burned down in the winter of 94. Mm-hmm. But shortly after the fair closed, a lot of people wanted things that were at the fair. So different museums and universities and colleges, because all of these things from around the world, all these kind of cultural treasures and objects had been brought to Chicago. And so the fair's organizers were going to have an auction where different institutions can bid on them. But this is, this is so Chicago. They gave any of the non-Chicago institutions from like Boston, New York, and places like that one date for the auction and gave Chicago people another date, which was earlier. So they were able to bid on everything. And a lot of those things became the basis of the Field Museum's collection. The first thousand or so items in the Field Museum's collection all date to the World's Fair or part of the World's Fair. But you know, Chicagoans had an in because <laughs> they were given an earlier date. And I'm like, that's... Classic, right? I'm kind of setting things up. Mildly corrupt, but... It's kind of a callback to the uh, Simon uh, Pogagin's mm-hmm. yeah. objections or discussions of the treaty of Chicago, which is kicking the Indians west of the Mississippi. Right. And again, Chicagoans are insiders on getting first bids on the land that becomes available mm-hmm. before everybody else. Right. It's classic Chicago... Or classic human nature that human nature. the insiders get an inside track. Yeah. But this seems to be like one of those places that loves to play up that narrative. We talked earlier about Nelson Algren's, you know, Chicago City on the Make. And there definitely is that sort of ethos of a kind of hustler town. And here you see it yeah. playing out in connection with the, the World's Fair a little bit. So are there some particular things 
institutions here in Chicago still have from the fair that stand out because of that? Yes. The Field Museum in particular has a lot of things from the World's Fair, uh-huh. but there are other uh, good collections in the city as well. If you're interested in like souvenirs, the Field Museum is where you can see a lot of the different cultural objects that were brought to Chicago as part of the fair. The Ryerson Library, which is at the Art Institute of Chicago, okay, that actually has a lot of planning documents and materials connected to Burnham and Root and the various architects that were involved in the fair. The Chicago Public Library has a really wonderful collection of materials that people who had visited the fair donated. So like all these great souvenirs Mm -hmm. and things like that. I think I've seen some of that. Is that in their special collections? It is. Or maybe I've been in there when they have exhibit room on the third floor before you go in to the main part of the library that has revolving collections that they're sharing. I think I've seen some of that. Yeah, I mean, they have a lot of materials. And then, you know, the Newberry, where I work, has a lot mm-hmm. of materials as well. Uh, a lot of like people's personal papers and scrapbooks and memoirs, mm-hmm. a lot of souvenirs, postcards and, and things. So bits and pieces of the fair kind of survive yeah. all over. Paul, do you have at the Newberry that, I think it's a three-volume history of the Columbian Exposition edited by Rossiter Johnson? I've only heard about it. I read, there's a great book called Chicago by the Book, 101 Publications by the Caxton Club. And this is one of their picks of one of the great books of Chicago history. And I'm looking at a photograph of it. I mean, this is one of these encyclopedic, gargantuan books. But I would love to delve into this, although it would probably crush me under its weight. I know, I believe the Newberry does have an edition as I said, I started in January and then we closed down pretty quickly. So I haven't had a chance to, to look for it. I do remember, though, when I was doing research for my walking tour, when I was living in Hyde Park, the University of Chicago's Regenstein Library had a copy of it. Mm-hmm. It's rich with images and lots of just kind of like facts and details, which just make you realize the amount of work that went into creating the fair and the amount of resources that were used to kind of bring it into being. I mean, it was a truly immense feat. It's, it's almost kind of a time capsule of the fair. And also there's chapters on how to do your own World's Fair because they thought that people would continue to do these into the future. And, you know, they did. In 1904, you've got the St. Louis World's Fair, um, which is very similar to the Chicago World's Fair in, in terms of its kind of feel and then design. In fact, even the Ferris wheel makes reappearance at that fair. And then, you know, you have later expositions happening, even in like Western states, like in in Western cities, like San Francisco and Portland and Seattle, all host World's Fairs in the 19-teens and the aughts. And then, you know, famously, we start getting the really big ones, like the 1939 World's Fair and and so on. And I think there was an economic crash about that time as well. Yes. And I heard stories of people living in the buildings afterwards and it being kind of decrepit and a little sketchy place to go after dark. And So yeah, so the summer of 1893, there's an economic collapse. It's the worst economic crisis prior to the Great Depression. And some economic historians think that when it was at its height, the unemployment rate was something around like 25%. And it affected all industries, all walks of life. Because of the World's Fair, Chicago was protected to some extent from feeling the effects of it because there was so much economic activity Mm -hmm. going on during the summer. But once that fair closes in October, then the city begins to suffer. And you're right, 
more or less all the buildings were just left and abandoned there. The idea was that they were going to break them down and sell them for scrap. Mm -hmm. But prior to them doing that, a lot of people moved in and took up residence and fires would break out in these buildings. And because, you know, they were just built of these temporary materials, the exteriors mm -hmm. were made of this kind of plaster staff material. There was a lot of wood in the interior. Right. A lot, you know, most of the fairs burnt down. I'm imagining a lot of the lath and plaster that, that some of the older buildings in Chicago have today. That then if you're going to remodel and it's those strips of wood that then plaster is put on and replaced with drywall. And then after the World's Fair closed, October 30th, 1893, a lot of people who had been working at the fair suddenly were without a job. But some members of the Columbian Guard later went on to work and provide security at what became the Columbian Museum and then the Field Columbian Museum which was in the Palace of Fine Arts at the World's Fair, which today we know as the Museum of Science and Industry. But that was also the, the first home of what is today the Film Museum of Natural History. So some of those same Colombian guards, they saved, they saved their uniforms, I guess, because it was economical. And they just you know, became the sort of security at the, the new Field Columbian Museum until it left that site in, in the early 1920s. Oh, I was just going to say, Paul, you talked about labor strife. Within nine months of the World's Fair, you have the Pullman strike. Sometimes we think of these things in a vacuum, but that was a pretty unbelievable event just nine months later with federal troops occupying Chicago for part of it. Right. And then that event very much comes in response to that economic panic, as it was called in the summer of 1893. So, you know, Pullman... As I talked about earlier, you know, he created this kind of like model community for his workers, but his economic crisis emerges, demand for his train cars goes down. So he sheds some of his workforce, he cuts the wages of others, but then he doesn't reduce the rent in the town <laughs> where most of them live or the other costs of like groceries and things like that. And that's, you know, what leads to a lot of the workers going on strike. And then, you know, a, a larger union, the American Railway Union becomes involved as a kind of like sympathy strike. And you're right. And then Grover Cleveland, who was the president who was there in May of 1893 to open the whole fair, has to then you know, send in, in federal troops to kind of restore order against the wishes of a governor of Illinois at the time, John Peter Altgeld. So it's interesting that, yeah, you have the wonder of the fair happening in the summer of 1893. One summer later, the city in, in this state of turmoil and both south side of, of the city, not too far in terms of distance from, from one another. I would say someone like Frederick Law Olmsted actually probably would have been in greater sympathy with someone like a Simon Pokagan or Ida B. Wells. A lot of people don't know this about Olmsted because today we just remember him as being this landscape designer artist, but he actually started as a journalist. And in the decade before the Civil War, he traveled through the states of what would become the Confederacy, the Southern states, and reported very frankly about what he observed about the institution of slavery and for Northern newspapers, and really kind of grew awareness around it that kind of led to more people in Northern states being aware of what was going on. A lot of people felt disillusioned by the aftermath of the Civil War, and, and I think for Olmsted, the World's Fair meant something very different. I think he was hoping that it would reaffirm a kind of commitment to American ideals of liberty and, and equality and, you know, the, the right to a, a pursuit of happiness, whereas, you know, others may have interpreted it 
otherwise like a burnout. So it's interesting. I mean, all kind of different perspectives, right, can get kind of folded into the story of a world's fair. I'm reading a book about that right now by the late Tony Horowitz called Spying on the South about Olmsted's trip. I think he made two trips to the South in, I think, 1854 or something. And it's absolutely fascinating. This is an interesting quirk of the moment, too, is that people might start off in kind of one walk of life and then end up being known for something very different. Locally here, we have it kind of with, uh, you know, Stubbs Turkle, the noted oral historian. He started out as a radio actor, who then became a television actor, and then only kind of stumbled into oral histories, which he's probably best known for today. And the Olmsted story is kind of like that, too. He was a journalist who then, you know, became involved in landscape design. Or somebody who had a painting at the Palace of Fine Arts was George Washington Carver. So George Washington Carver mm-hmm. was a painter before he ever got into botany and, and did his famous experiments with That's peanuts. Uh, but he was there at, at the fair, but he was there as a, as a fine artist, as a, as a visual artist. So Chris, I wanted to break in here briefly, George Washington Carver. He was born in 1864 and died in January of 1943. Interesting that he was an artist. I did not know that. I knew him because in school I was told that he did some research, agricultural research, and was like a scientist and came up with peanut butter, which is one of my favorite foods. And one of the things that he has done is practical bulletins. He did about 44 of these for farmers, and it contained 105 food recipes using peanuts. So, you know, you might want to look into George Washington Carver. He was uh, African-American, born in Diamond, Missouri, and uh, he went to Tuskegee University. So anyway, back to our interview. Again, and and all the firsts that came out of the fair, and we've heard about the Cracker Jacks, and we've heard about the Mm -hmm. spearmint gum, and I'm sure there's some others. Do do you know any that are just sort of not well-known as firsts that came out of the fair? I mean, what's interesting is, also verifying some of this stuff and how tricky and hard it is. It's kind of like one of those things where a lot of people after the fact kind of claim an association. Mm-hmm. Pabst is a good example and Liz may have talked about this, but the blue ribbon, yep. Pabst just moved very quickly after the fair. And if you look at some of the other products too, they have these kind of like complicated stories. What about the Emerald City? You know, L. Frank Baum he lived in Chicago. And you could see the ways in which the World's Fair could have been inspired the, the Wizard of Oz. Particularly uh, when you look at the illustrations by Denslow, who was the first illustrator of the original editions of the Oz books, William Denslow, you can see the sort of influence of the World's Fair in, in the way in which he renders the Emerald City. I mean, that would make sense because Denslow was a newspaper illustrator who only turned to, to kind of illustrating children's books. I can see connections there. So I was trying to think, when was the last World's Fair? You know, there was, we had the one City of the Century in, in 1933 in Chicago. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, were there other World's Fairs after that? Then those have, seem to have kind of died out, maybe at World War II as possibly? I don't know. There still are some World's Fairs, but they really, you know, start to die out in, in the post-war decade. There's in 64, there's the World's Fair in New York. Mm-hmm. There's the World's Fair in 68 in Seattle that gets us the Seattle uh, Space Needle. Oh. You got the Echo in Montreal, which got a baseball team that's now the Washington Nationals. 
but the world's fair yeah. still sort of happen, but they typically don't happen in prominent cities. I, don't, I shouldn't denigrate any city, but they're, they're not of the same size or, or scale mm-hmm. as they once were. I can't imagine Chicago wanting to do one again, but I would say, you know, the sort of analog would be like the Olympics, right? And then and, and when there was that sort of bid to, to host right. the, the 2016 Olympics here in Chicago, that would be the kind of closest thing, I think, to trying to like do something like a, a World's Fair yeah. in it, be like this one. Or, you know, in any kind of American city, right? It's kind of got a similar sort of level of prestige. Mm-hmm. Once again, brings people from all around the world to a place, kind of sort of highlights what that place. But to remember, the World's Fair in 1893 managed to, uh, to turn a profit. <laughs> and that's often the problem with, with Olympics, is the cities that end up hosting them end up going, you know, pretty deeply in debt. Right. So, but who knows, maybe we will get an Olympics at some point. It's kind of crazy that Chicago, I mean, never has hosted an Olympics game. But if you think about it, Paul, I think a third of the United States population came to the Columbian Exposition. That's right, yeah. And you could write a book of just the people that attended, like a young Franklin Roosevelt. And Theodore Roosevelt wanted to camp on the Wooded Island. But the, the Japanese beat him out. But you could just write a huge narrative about the famous people that were here. Yeah, that's right. I've forgotten the story about Roosevelt and wanting to camp out. The fair was just such a strange space. So the Wood Island, you know, half of it was Japanese pavilion. And now there is a, it's a reproduction, but there's the, the sort of tea houses there today. But then the other half of the island was something called like the Davy Crockett, it was Davy Crockett, it wasn't Daniel Boone, cabin. And it was like this rustic cabin that they built for people to like camp. And I, I think that's what TR wanted and had in mind, but you know, it was not <laughs> But Harriet Monroe, the founder of like Poetry Magazine, got to stay at like Davy Crockett camp for a time on the Wooded Island. But it's just weird to be that like one end of the island, it's like, you know, you're going back to like feudal Japan. The other end of the island, it's like the American frontier at like Davy Crockett and Daniel Boone. And they're just kind of like next to each other. And there's all these miniature deer on the island, too, for some reason. We also, I mean, I think because we have the photos of the Court of Honor, we see that beautiful architecture. But we also forget, too, that in some ways, the World's Fair was like a really big, like, state or county fair with all of the kind of weirdness that you might associate with those kind of experiences in terms of the different attractions and the livestock and the, you know, the different foods that you could eat. It had that kind of... Carnival atmosphere. Carnival atmosphere to it as well. Yeah. Yeah. Midway Plaisance was famous for that because wasn't, and you kind of hint at this in your book about morality, the first belly dance took place on the Plaisance, but because it was, quote, cultural, you could have scantily clad women doing dances. Right. Which is funny. I mean, it's it's probably made some aldermen nervous. Right. So the Cairo attraction famously had... Little Egypt, who was, was doing the sort of dances inspired by the Middle East and that melody that is still kind of recognizable today would have been played. And as you mentioned, you know, there's those risque things. But once again, weird about that is that Street of Cairo attraction was designed by the architect Henry Ives Cobb to look kind of, well, like a street in, in Egypt. But then Henry Ives Cobb was also the architect who designed a lot of the early buildings at the University of Chicago and was the architect for the Newberry <laughs> Library. <Wow. laughs> so again, these weird sure. ways in which the fair, you know, you're always kind of alternating between high and low culture, 
between things that feel very classical and rarefied and things that feel very popular. You've got them all just sharing space on the south side of Chicago. And even that, I think, would be really interesting to experience again, just that kind of juxtaposition. You don't have any experiences like that today, right? We've got our cultural institutions like the Art Institute or the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. And then we've got our, like, Taste of Chicago and Lollapalooza. Right. But to really kind of get a sense of what the World's Fair was like, both of those kind of worlds existing side by side from May to October of, of 1893. That's a great analogy. It would be like Lollapalooza, Taste of Chicago, connected by a tent to the Newberry. Right. And Ravinia. And the biennial thrown in, right, on top of it. And the biennial right. thrown in, exactly. Right. The biennial buildings hosting right. a lot of this stuff. But I think that the funniest thing is that this fair was planned so well, yet somehow they forgot there were 31 days in October. Well, that was a late decision. So it was supposed to stay open. If you look at some of the tickets from the fair, it was going to close on the 31st of October. But the mayor of Chicago at the time, Carter Harrison, who I talked about earlier, was assassinated. So they changed what they had intended for the closing ceremonies make them much more low-key and, and solemn because he had been killed basically as the fair was drawing to a close. Yeah, it's a very dramatic fashion. I mean, Eric Larson does a good job of kind of portraying that whole thing. Yeah, the devil in the white city. Probably one of the biggest funerals in the history of Chicago besides the Haymarket right. martyrs. I mean, it's a weird historical coincidence, but you know, Harrison is remembered as the mayor of the 1893 World's Fair and Anton Cermak is remembered as the mayor for 33-34 World's Fair. He also ends up being assassinated as well, which is a strange historical coincidence. Not many cities have mayors who uh, end up being assassinated. It's not a political oh figure you often go after. Maybe that's why Chicago didn't have any more World's Fairs. They had smart mayors. It's true. It's possible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Many mayors after Cermak who irritated people. <laughs> Talking about uncomplicated future, what would Burnham and these gentlemen think of the statues of Columbus being removed in 2020 in Chicago? Probably in their perspective, it was about the whole impetus of the event was to mark the arrival of Columbus in the Americas, which is interesting because the fair actually opens in 1893, whereas we always think of 1492 being the date. But there were many reasons too complicated to go into as to why the fair's opening was pushed back. I mean, basically, I think they needed more time, right? I mean, that's the short answer. Right, they need more time. That was it. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, the cultural worries of a period, Burnham as a man in the 19th century, I think would have looked at the, the Columbus story as one of a progress, right? And of a kind of mm -hmm. encountering this land and then kind of building it up, right? And then the United States, the kind of heir to that moment because it's, you know, started in the East, but now it's spread all the way to the West Coast. But you know, we're already people living on the North American continent and the South American continent and even on Hispaniola, Cuba, where, where Columbus arrived. And so, you know, we're at a different point in our history where we're kind of looking back and, and taking a more critical look. But even at that moment in the 1890s, there were some people who were taking a, a critical look at things. So I don't know where Burnham, I mean, yeah, Burnham 
I think was very much a figure of his period. I've been interested in this topic. Why do we worship Columbus in Chicago and the nation? We talked to Jeff Nichols about this. So uh, the inverse of that question is, what would the commissioners of the World's Fair think of the remaining statues of Christopher Columbus in this town being removed this summer? Shocked and probably completely baffled. I mean, for them, I think it was pretty obvious that Columbus was a heroic figure. And for us, having our understanding of great tragedy of what happened to Native Americans, having a greater understanding through archival material of who Columbus was. Mm -hmm. As a person. Yeah, as a person not as a heroic figure, but as a really lucky screw up <laughs> who <laughs> whose actions were so appalling that, you know, he wasn't being persecuted when, when he was censured by the crown, the Spanish crown, he deserved to be removed from power. I think they would just be appalled that Columbus, the, the removal of his statues. Mm -hmm. So that was Jeff's take on the Columbian Exposition and why it's centered around Columbus. And now we'll get back to our discussion with Paul. And do you have any new projects coming up, Paul, that we should know about? A couple different things. So at the Newberry, we're open Tuesday through Friday, noon to four. It's free. People can come and visit the exhibition. And then on my own, there's a community radio station in Bridgeport called WLPN. Yeah, I've, I've been on there. Yeah, so I'm going to do a, a Chicago history-focused radio show coming up Yeah. called Pocket Guide to Hell. shares the name with the public history events that I used to do. And so we're hoping to have the first of those episodes premiere at the end of this month. So I'll have to have you guys as guests on our show. Oh, sure. <laughs> if it survives yeah. and if it goes anywhere. It's just a fun thing to experiment and try to do uh, something different. And you pick them up off the internet, right? Yeah. WLPN. And Paul, uh, tell us the origin story of Pocket Guide to Hell, the John Burns quote. You know, John Burns, who's this... British MP had been like a, like a union leader, visits Chicago in 1895, I mean, on tour of the United States, and he gets interviewed by a journalist, and the journalist asks him for his like, impressions of the city. And, you know, he takes into the political corruption and, you know, all the pollution, because it's a big industrial city, you know, all of the different forms of inequality. And he says that Chicago is a pocket edition of hell. And then <laughs> when he's ready to go back to England, he gets interviewed again, and, you know, he's, someone brings this comment up, you know, was that really fair to Chicago to call it a pocket of hell? And so he purportedly says, on second thought, I now think hell is a pocket edition of Chicago. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so that's where we got a name for it. That's great. Yeah. So those Englishmen and Scotsmen, they don't like Chicago. Look at Kipling. He hated it. Whether it's William T. Stead or Kipling or any of those guys. But, you know, it's not like they didn't have their own problems back home. Can you leave us with some grand statement about the World's Fair? So when the Chicago flag that we all know and love today was first adopted in the 19-teens, 
There were only two stars on it. Today we have four. Those two stars, the Great Chicago Fire of 1871 and the World's Fair of 1893. So clearly to Chicagoans at that moment and probably to people all around the world, this was one of the things the city was known for because it would not only put Chicago on the world stage, uh, but it put the United States as well uh, on the world stage and kind of helped set the course for the role that both the city and the country would play in the 20th century. Wow, now that is very profound. When do they add the Chicago Fire and Star? Is that later? A guy named Wallace Rice designs the flag and it's adopted in 1911. And so you got the Chicago Fire and you got the 1893 World's Fair. And then when they have the 33, 34 World's Fair that you talked about, that gets added as third star. But Fort Dearborn, that doesn't get added until 1939. So even though chronologically it's the oldest of those four kind of key moments, it's the last one added. So the fact that, you know, looking back at the whole history of Chicago, the two that they pick first to highlight are, you know, the fire in the World's Fair kind of tells you a sense of what that event meant to Chicagoans and the sort of story that we tell ourselves about the, the city. So cool. I think the flag is fantastic. I love it. And I love that Lori Lightfoot wears a mask with the Chicago flag on it during this pandemic. And I would love to get that, that flag it's mask. It's a great flag. design. Not many cities have municipal flags that, that look that good. It's a good, clean design. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you, Paul. Yeah, thanks so much. We'll let you go. We really appreciate the time. Yeah, thanks so much. This was fun. This, this was great. Great. Thank you very much. Take care. Bye-bye. So, Chris, great interview again, as we've said at the beginning through throughout these three parts of the Third Star episodes. The interviews with Paul, Dorica, and... Jeff Nichols have been wonderful. Yeah, just talking to those gentlemen about history is very engaging. Definitely a treat. You were saying something about somebody that has basically earned three stars from the Chicago flag? Yes. This is what happens when you read too much. (laughs) Again, I have a tower of books on this. So, again, just briefly, there are four stars on the Chicago flag. They represent Fort Dearborn, the Chicago Fire, Columbian Exposition, and the Century of Progress in 1933. I know of one person who can historically claim three stars. A connection to all three or attending all three? Yes, a connection to all three. Tell me. And I'm going to lean on you because you know a lot about one of these connections. I'm a total blank. Tell me. All right. There is a painter named James McNeil Whistler. He painted this painting that everyone knows, but no one knows the real name of it. The real name of this painting is, quote, Arrangement in Gray and Black, number one. This is what you and I and the culture would call Whistler's mother. Right. Oh, right. Yes. So here's the story. This painting was at the 1933 World's Fair, you could pay a nickel for the privilege of viewing this painting. Okay, so there's one star. Whistler's artwork also was exhibited in the Palace of Fine Arts that we know of as the Museum of Science and Industry in 1893. He had six oil paintings displayed there for the Columbian Exposition. So that's two stars. Okay. 
And one of the paintings was the lady with the yellow buskin and the princess of the land of porcelain and 63 sketches, okay? They were at the Palace of Fine Arts. Wow. Now, you're the expert on early Chicago, Patrick. So the other connection then, of course, is his... Grandfather. Let's see. His grandfather... Yes. ...was John Whistler, who built Fort Dearborn in 1803 and helped found what we know of as Chicago. Yep. Now, Whistler was fortunate enough, at least as far as the Battle of Fort Dearborn or the massacre, depending on how it's told, to have been removed in 1810 up to Fort Detroit. Right. Before the hostilities. Well, I mean, they knew they were coming at that point, but there was a reshuffling. And there's a whole other controversy, and that we got into in some degree in one of our earlier episodes on Fort Dearborn. Yes. So that would be the third star. Yeah, so James McNeil Whistler has a, a claim, a very steady, reliable claim on three of the stars. Right. Based on the evidence. Fascinating. So that is what I call a trifecta, Patrick. And again, um, if one really wants a great grounding in Chicago history, the first star... Episodes we did with Ann Dirk and Keating are really fascinating about the Indian country of Chicago. So, anyway, we're we're doing a bunch of callbacks during this particular episode. Maybe things are starting to coalesce with this laying the foundation series. Yeah. Well, it, these connections are all real and and they're all related. You know, the other thing that I found interesting in learning more about the Columbian Exposition, which I hadn't really researched much before, was the fact a lot of the things that happened at the fair that are relevant today and still making headlines to call back to that fair, that Columbian Exposition. There's a connection to it. Of 1893. Yes. So, Patrick, it's like a game of Trivial Pursuit. Whatever the topic, whether it's music or it's art like we just discussed with Whistler or history it's just it's all related so there you go we could create a Colombian exposition trivial pursuit edition and, oh easily and there might be three or four people that would buy it <laughs> <laughs> well that's all right you want an example Patrick I was thinking of for instance Aunt Jemima right Aunt Jemima pancakes yes has been around a long time and you were doing some research and you found out that brand debuted at the World's Fair. I think you told me that. However, it was just recently in the news because they've retired that brand and are now calling pancake mix or syrup or whatever is under that brand the Pearl Milling Company after the original owners of the pancake mix. I think there was even a segment a couple weekends ago on Saturday Night Live where they had all these People representing like Aunt Jemima or other uh, loaded racist archetype brands that were then complaining that they're going to get kicked out of a job. And what's the problem? So you come down on these things and there's the pragmatic of people uh, losing jobs over changes like this or the irony, I guess, of, of making change. Well, Patrick, as we know from studying history, Things change over time. Christopher Columbus was revered in 1893. In 2020, 
people were trying to tear down the statue of Christopher Columbus. So in that time frame, sensibilities have changed. Many of the statues in Chicago that represent Native Americans are being called into question now. Yeah. People are very sensitive to these matters. And so when we look back in history, some of the things that were at the fair that were not considered controversial at the time are considered so to the 21st century sensibilities. Right. And that would include Aunt Jemima, who, as you said, an archetype that one can see in the old Tom and Jerry cartoons. You know, it was and is stereotypical of the mammy role, like in Gone with the Wind. Yeah. That is an archetype that has obviously fallen it's not a positive thing. Right. It, so in 21st century America, many people are uncomfortable with the Anchemima brand and what it represented at the time it was created. Anchemima is a, a racist stereotype that brings up a lot of bad feeling. For many people, right. historians. <laughs> Or American music, for example, the song America the Beautiful, which was actually not a song, it was a poem that was written by Catherine Lee Bates, and the music was added later by Samuel Ward. But in 1893, at the age of 33, Bates, who was an English professor at Wesley College, she Mm-hmm. was asked to teach a summer school session in Colorado Springs. And so she went out west. And many of the sites along her journey inspired her. You know, she talked about the Purple Mountain Majesty. You know, that was the Rockies. Yeah. The amber waves of grain, you know, going through Nebraska and whatnot. And one of the stops along the way was the World's Columbian Exposition in Chicago, the White City. And that inspired her to write the lyrics, which are found in the fourth stanza that you don't usually hear. Yeah. This is what they say. A great for patriot dream that sees beyond the years, thine alabaster cities gleam, undimmed by human tears. America, America, friendship. Alabaster cities gleam. That's the White City. Ah, reference to the Court of... uh, Court of Honor. Court of Honor, right. That inspired so many people. So that's something I didn't even know, Chris. So your book tower of research is paying off. Speaking of, you know, patriotism and and music or or things that are referenced the fair, the whole Colin Kaepernick controversy, uh, kneeling at NFL games, also has a tie back to the World's Fair that you were telling me about. Well, you're right, in the sense of patriotism, because with Colin Kaepernick, he felt the national anthem was representative of maybe one part of society and not his. 
And so he took a stand on public declarations of patriotism. And this does have a total connection to the World's Fair. Do you remember, Patrick, in 1988 when George H.W. Bush was running for president against Michael Dukakis? Wait a minute. And this was hilarious. I think I was in Washington, D.C. at that time. Dukakis totally got lambasted when he popped up out of the hatch of that tank wearing the leather helmet or kind of hat that they wore. Yeah. And he had a bit of a a nose. And so it was almost a caricature of a candidate that was irresistible and it forever kind of doomed his candidacy. Yeah. Smart politicians never wore hats. Like John F. Kennedy never put a hat on because a lot of these events, someone will hand you some goofy hat. And if you wear it, then someone takes a picture of it. It lives forever. So what did that election have to do with the World's Fair? Well, most of that election was about the Pledge of Allegiance and whether Americans should say it or not. And I don't know why it turned into this, but it became kind of a, I'm more patriotic than you. And there's a lot of clips of Bush saying the Pledge of Allegiance and mm. and it became a thing yeah. about, you know, yeah. declaring your patriotism. Right. Now, you and I said the Pledge of Allegiance when we were in school, right? Yeah, it was usually at the beginning of school, at least in elementary school and maybe middle school even. Well, the Pledge of Allegiance was written in 1892 by Francis Bellamy, who was a Baptist minister and a socialist. And the reason he wrote it was there was a, an organization called the Youth's Companion, and mm-hmm. Bellamy was hired to work on this magazine, and they thought a flag promotion might be a way to, you know, move the magazine. Yeah. Flag promotion was part of it. To sell flags to every school in the nation, it worked pretty well, and they wound up selling American flags to about 26,000 schools by 1892. Mm-hmm. So 400th anniversary of Christopher Columbus was being obviously planned with the World's Fair in 1893. So the magazine thought this would be great, but this time the market was slowing for flags and, you know, they needed to move some more merchandise, Patrick. Ah, the flag manufacturers, you mean. Right. Mm -hmm. So to have this flag promotion coincided with the World's Columbian Exposition, this pledge of allegiance was published in the September 8th, 1892 issue of the magazine, it went to work. And Bellamy spoke at many meetings of superintendents and whatnot, and it kind of took off like a wildfire. You mean school superintendents that he spoke with and meetings? Okay. Right. Conferences for educators. And by 1892, Bellamy had arranged for Congress and President Benjamin Harrison to announce a proclamation making the public school flag ceremony, the center of Columbus Day celebrations. And subsequently, the pledge was used in public schools on October 12, 1892, during Columbus Day. That's also when Columbus Day became an official holiday Mm. by the president. Right. Right. So here's the funny thing, Patrick. You know how people say, like, Vice President Bush, when he was running for president in 1988, you know, claiming that you got to say the pledge, right? Tradition. Yeah, against Dukakis, right? Right. You got to say the pledge, it's tradition. Yeah. 
Well, you got to be careful when you talk about tradition because when you and I said the pledge growing up in school, mm -hmm. we put our hand over our heart, right? Yeah, that's right. Well, that's not what they did in 1892. Do I dare ask where they put their hand? <laughs> <laughs> in this day of politically correctness and me too? They extended their right hand straight out towards the flag. Oh my gosh. Which oh my is basically a Heil Hitler salute. Right. right. Calls back. And that's exactly what it looks like. But that was well before. I'm actually looking at a picture of it right now, and, and it looks like a Hitler youth rally. These kids are pledging allegiance to the flag. Which logically, at that day and age, makes sense. This is well before World War II. And if you're pledging allegiance to the flag, instead of putting your hand over your heart, you'd raise your hand up towards the flag, right? Or the symbol that you're pledging allegiance to, right? Yeah. Okay, so right. seemingly innocent, you know, gesture, right? Well, tradition, Patrick. I mean, because for 60 years, people, kids saluted the flag in this salute. In this fashion, yeah. In this fashion, but in 1942, Congress quietly amended the flag code to do away with this Hitler salute. Which it became known as, yeah, right. Well, I mean, in 1942, they knew what that meant. Yes. So they quietly changed it. That's when the hand on the heart started. You got to be careful when you search for the roots of tradition. Yes. And for instance, the swastika goes back, as I understand it, into very early history. And its original meaning was peace. And it was a, a religious symbol at times. It was a Buddhist symbol. I think it was a reverse swastika. Ah. You see it in ancient artwork. Quite oh. right. It was appropriated by the Nazis and perverted by the, the Nazi party. Which, you know, classic politics, you can kind of pervert anything. But it is interesting, again, going back to that 1988 campaign of tradition and the pledge and whatnot. And it was a sacred thing to do. But right. its origins were really about moving flags. And then getting into sort of less controversial things from the fair, you had mentioned to me, and I, I guess most people know that look at the fair history, but I didn't know Cracker Jack was originated there. And maybe Paul mentioned it briefly. Right. Uh, Cracker Jacks were debuted at the fair. And I just learned this, Patrick, you know, the famous song, Take Me Out to the Ball Game. Yeah. Which mentions peanuts and Cracker Jacks. That was written in 1908. So... Apparently, Cracker Jacks made quite an impression in the 20-some years since the fair started. Well, that's sort of an early version of product placement like we have on television today, right? Right, definitely. <laughs> and then the zipper, wasn't that originated or first debuted at the fair? The zipper did make its debut at the fair, that's correct. And so when you told me that, I'm like, oh, cool. And then I could let it go and when I was writing up the notes, my next thought was, well, what was before the zipper? Well, we'd have to use buttons for everything. Thousands of years, you were using a button. Right. So, like, imagine all the time savings of 100-plus years of the zipper versus having to do or undo, let alone sew on and add buttons to any garment. You couldn't have the close-fitting clothing that you have today nearly as as easy as you could before the zipper well, sure right i mean how do you wear a spacesuit right. you know do you use a button well and, and that's another invention not related to the fair the columbian exposition 
but that was where Velcro came from. That's right. That's right. Because you had those bulky gloves on that you couldn't take something on or off and get a good seal. And so, as I recall the story, you know, cockle burrs, or you, you go walking in the woods and you have those burrs that have uh, like a hook on the end of them and they get attached to your clothing. And somebody actually thought harder and looked at that and, and under a microscope to see, well, why was it clinging to everything and came up with that loop and hook of Velcro. And of course, you can't forget Tang, Patrick. That was always my favorite invention to come out of the space program. Right. But then you told me you had a quiz for me about yet another quiz, your famous quizzes here, about a cultural reference to another song that's tied back to the Columbian Exposition. Yes. Believe it or not, Patrick, there is a connection between Monty Python's Flying Circus and the World's Fair. Which I, I'm, I'm having a tough time figuring out. Well, here's, here's what happened. Because that was like a 60s British sketch comedy, revolutionary for the sketch comedy. I, I can't see how that would tie back to 1893. Well, John Philip Sousa, who performed with his military band at the World's Fair, you know, he wrote such amazing marches as the Stars and Stripes Forever and other tunes. He had written a tune for an operetta that he had been working on called The Devil's Deputy before the financing for the show fell through. And thought it was done, actually. He just didn't have a name for it. So he was at the Columbian Exposition, and even though he performed at it a lot, he had some downtime, and so he went and saw one of these pageants. Pageants were big back then, Patrick. Now, what's a pageant exactly? I kind of have a rough idea. What should I envision? This is pre-movies, right? So this would be like a musical that honors, let's say, America. So if you were writing this, you might have some booming music, and then you might have the Statue of Liberty literally appear, maybe walk on the stage, and then a chorus would sing and people would stand up and salute it. And, and, and I'm, I'm sure it would be terrible. So like a, a cheap version of that, I think of the beauty pageant, which takes some of those elements of a little bit of speaking, pageantry of walking and showing off your clothing or swimsuit, you know, or and then maybe talking a little bit about a topic of world peace or something like that. So it was a better version of that that's less sexist and more about a topic, right? Yeah, I would say that's a good explanation. So for modern viewers, it would be terrible. We would think this is terrible. But apparently these were quite popular. So what happened was he was watching this pageant called America. And in the background was a Liberty Bell that was lowered at the appropriate time, you know, for the most dramatic moments. And Yeah, it had a lot of symbolism for the nation at that point, particularly. So... Sousa's band manager, George Hinton, you know, he knew that Sousa had this song in his, in his mind. He just didn't have a title. So Hinton said to uh, Sousa, he says, hey, that tune that you wrote, that unnamed march, why don't you call it the Liberty Bell? And Sousa was like, you know what? That, that's a good idea. So he named that tune the Liberty Bell, which is the theme music for Monty Python's Flying Circus. Oh, my God. All right. 
I'm forever biased towards Monty Python whenever I hear that music. Well, let's let's hear that tune right now. Absolutely. Monty Python's a flying circus. laughing because this music always cracks me up given that show was so darn funny and ridiculous silly walks like who would do that on television prior to monty python i mean nobody did anything like that that i'm aware of well think of this john philip Sousa gets inspired by a liberty bell being lowered at this dramatic yeah. spectacle america right right in the intro for monty python's flying circus as his tune is playing, a giant foot squashes, it is not lowered, it literally squashes whatever scenery is on the stage. That's the ending of the intro to the Liberty Bell March. And I can't remember now if it's crushing like a sousaphone player, but anyway. <laughs> Historians. I mean, I find that fascinating that there are so many things that are relevant today that we can trace back its origins to the world's Columbian Exposition of 1893. How about this, Patrick? I have a connection to Fermilab, which is in Chicago area. It's in the outskirts of Chicago. Right. That goes directly to the reading of a paper at the world's Columbian Exposition. No, tell me. I have no idea. Well... Remember we talked about the Parliament of Religions that yeah. took place at the Art Institute? In the first uh, part of the Third Star, yes. It wasn't just the religious meeting that took place with the Parliament of Religions. There was also a meeting in July of 1893 of the World's Congress of Historians and Historical Students. Oh, you and I would have nerded out on that for sure. Well, there's some people that we've studied and talked about that were in attendance, Patrick, including Mr. Reuben Goldthwaites. Ah, yes, from the Wisconsin Historical Society. Yes, Mr. Thwaites, our listeners might know his name because he was the editor of the voluminous 73 volumes of the Jesuit Relations and Allied Documents. Right, that was a major translation you have one page is in the French, and the other page is in the English translation. Right. So it's it's super cool to see. Just a treasure trove to dive into. All those French explorers and the trials and tribulations of New France and Canada. And, Fascinating. Yeah. And that came out in 1896, and the first three episodes of our podcast, we go into great detail about the Jesuit relations. Anyway, Reuben Thwaites was friends with this gentleman named Frederick Jackson Turner, who was a professor at the University of Wisconsin. Mm -hmm. And so as part of this Congress of Historians, invitations went out to the historians all over the United States. And believe it or not, very few Eastern historians would come to Chicago. Mm. Turn their nose up at us, huh? Yeah, they did. So Turner got an invitation, and, you know, Madison's not that far. So right. he... He agreed to come. And this was going to be where one would present papers. So Frederick Jackson Turner and his friend 
Reuben Thwaites, they come together, their families, they arrive early before the July 10th beginning of this, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. they stay in the dorms at the University of Chicago. Yeah, which had just been built. Right, so they get to Chicago, and all the guests immediately run out to explore the fair, go see the the Ferris wheel and, sure. and everything else. But Turner hadn't finished his paper yet. So he holed up in his room. It's like doing an all-nighter, right? Right, and he was finishing his essay, and he was just cranking it out. Oh, for this conference. So he, right. he has a deadline. Okay, got it. Right. He was going to give it two days later. So he wrote about the final agonies of getting out this paper. Anyway, then he goes to the Art Institute on July 12th, and it's a really hot day. Hmm. There's a bit of a lake breeze. And there's thousands of people milling about on the fairgrounds waiting for the arrival of the replica Viking ship from Norway that was to make an appearance. Oh, yeah. By the way, that's still in Chicago area today. Really? Yes, yes. It's out near Geneva, Illinois. Okay. Yeah. And two days before, actually, on July 10th, was storage plant at the fair that burned. Mm -hmm. And uh, there were some fatalities was a part of it. And Turner was not among those watching that fire. Here's the interesting thing, Patrick. You know, you think of historians as the serious lot, right? This yeah. serious stone-faced yeah. people. Academics, whatnot, yeah. Many of the historians, the first thing they did when they got to Chicago was go to the Buffalo Bill Wild West show. Oh, yeah. That's a piece of history reenacted. They asked Turner, they said, you want to go? And he said, I got to finish this paper. Right. <laughs> so it's an evening event and it's super hot, and people are tuckered out from visiting the fair. And so there's just a handful of people in the room for this presentation on these historical papers. And yeah, it was kind of a bore fest, okay, because th these were the topics being discussed. English popular uprisings in the Middle Ages. The social compact in Mr. Jefferson's adoption of the history of politics. And even our buddy uh, Reuben Thwaites gave a very boring paper on early lead mining in Illinois and Wisconsin. Okay. Not exactly, you know, headline-grabbing topics. So then Turner was up last. Imagine the audience has literally been bored into slumber by the time Turner speaks. So he's like the main event, though, huh? Not really. I mean, he, he's really not. Or is it just luck of the draw? It's just he just happens to be, they're, they're punching his ticket at the end of this program. Got it. Okay. After all, he's worked so hard these last couple of days to finish it up, probably. Right. So Turner walks up before this sleeping, sweating audience. <laughs> Turner's thesis was the significance of the frontier in American history. And he gives this paper on the American West. Mm -hmm. The frontier. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And basically what his thesis is, that the American West was a moving line, a border between the wilderness and civilization. And this frontier line, which separates civilization from wilderness, is, quote, the most rapid and effective Americanization, unquote, on the continent. It basically, it takes the European model from across the Atlantic and shapes it into something new. Yes. As something American. So he basically argues that the new country, as it expands, it becomes a laboratory for Americans 
to be Americans, mm -hmm. create their own democracy, their own religion, in the case of like the Mormon church. Their own culture and society. Right. And it's not European, it's American. And his point is that the American character was always in need of a new frontiers to expand and define itself. So the next day, the newspapers did not mention his paper. They mentioned the other yeah. boring papers, like lead mining in Wisconsin. They did not mention it. But it was published later in an academic journal. And of course, Theodore Roosevelt, who was not yet president, but was a historian himself on the yeah. American West. He wrote a lot of books, actually. And he certainly did. He wrote a series on the American West. I think it's a three-volume set. I have that on my shelf. Roosevelt congratulates Turner on his theory. That began the beginning of this theory of the frontier moving throughout the intellectual colleges and universities of, of the United States. And it was popular among New Dealers. Franklin Roosevelt and his aides, they talked about new frontiers. Right. For the third anniversary of Social Security in 1938, FDR said, there is still today a frontier that remains unconquered and America unclaimed. This is the great, the nationwide frontier of insecurity, of human want and fear. This is the frontier, the America, we have set ourselves to reclaim. Oh, by the way, as an aside, don't forget FDR was at the World's Fair in 1893. Right. As a young person. Right. That's exactly what I was thinking, because we'd mentioned that already in the episode. And then, of course, if anyone's been to Disneyland, there was Frontierland. Yeah. Turner's yeah. Frontier thesis influenced popular histories, motion pictures, novels. When you think about rugged individualism, you think about John Wayne, right? And all those movies directed by John Ford, The Searchers and whatnot, these all embody this concept of the frontier. And that would explain also the whole political movement of the Western states. I feel like they hold still a, a strong claim to true Americanism because they are the closest thing to the frontier still. Right. And then there were other frontiers. John F. Kennedy was inspired by Turner's thesis when he accepted the Democratic nomination for president. In 1960, Kennedy called out to the American people, I am asking each of you to be new pioneers on that new frontier. My call is to the young in heart, regardless of age, the stout in spirit, regardless of party. He's promoting the new frontier, which of course began with space exploration and technology and going to the moon. My brain is immediately calling up the beginning to Star Trek. Space, the final frontier. These are the voyages of the starship Enterprise. Its five-year mission to explore strange new worlds, to seek out new life and new civilizations. Boldly go where no man has to gone boldly before. Boldly go where no man has gone before. So the frontier metaphor, it became rooted in American politics. and You're absolutely right. And, and what's interesting, it just occurs to me, hearing this for the first time, we still have not shaken that sense of frontier and the use of it in politics and tying it to what America is and is about and innovation. Well, the frontier could get you to the moon. Right. And in physics, for example, Fermilab, Patrick, the physicist who built Fermilab, 
which is in Batavia, which is about an hour and a half west of Chicago. Mm -hmm. They explicitly sought to recapture the excitement of the old frontier. They argued that, quote, frontier imagery motivated Fermilab physicists and a rhetoric remarkably similar to that of Turner helped them secure support for their research. Also rejecting the East and West Coast lifestyles that most scientists preferred, they selected the Chicago suburb of Batavia on the prairie as a location of their lab. And also, Patrick, just to put a cherry on top, yeah, there's still a small herd of American bison that are at the lab. Oh, interesting. A presence of the frontier of physics and a connection to the American prairie. Again, that bison herd still lives on the grounds of Fermi Lab. That's all because of a paper delivered at the Art Institute in July 12th, 1893 by Frederick Jackson Turner. The name of Turner's thesis was The Significance of the Frontier in American History. In connection with the Columbian Exposition of 1893. And, and, you know, and, and one of the downsides, though, I feel like of this whole argument that we can't let go of is that as Americans, we have this xenophobia and sense that if it wasn't invented here first, it isn't any good. And as a culture, very reluctant to copy anything or try anything that was has been done in Europe, even though they've been living in the same place for over 2,000 years and, or longer, and have figured out a few things about human condition and infrastructure and how things might work that are often better than they are here in the United States, although cultural systems and government is different. Do we know if, if Roosevelt was at that talk? No, I don't think he was. I think he was like 10 years old or something. He would have been bored stiff. Okay. Mama, can we please go see the Ferris wheel? <laughs> That's right. It's really hot in here. Right, right, right. Yeah, he, I mean, he was here for the Columbian Exposition. He probably was not here for that history group. I wanted to add that my brother, Brendan, who went to the University of Wisconsin, yes, was in the dorms named Frederick Jackson Turner Dorms. Ah, there you go. Another connection. Another connection to us in the Columbian Exposition and Chicago history. Yes. So, Chris, we've finally come to the end of this mini-series on the third star. Audio editing by Christopher Lynch and Patrick McBriarty at the Waveland Island Studios. And special thanks to Jill Hogginson for the idea and branding assistance, and Nate Kennedy for technical support and specking our audio equipment. Chris, before we end this, you have a favorite story that you wanted to share. And I think it has to do with Little Egypt. Yes, Patrick. Little Egypt was the name of the dancer who performed at the Streets of Cairo exhibit on the Midway Plaisance, which, of course, that's where the Ferris wheel was. And, and what kind of dancer was she, Chris? Well, she was a belly dancer. We would call it a belly dancer. Yes. And there was a few of these dancers, but the, the most famous one was Faria Mazur. Spiropolis, who was a dancer who performed under the stage name Fatima. 
And belly dancing was very risque, but because it was cultural, it was considered art. So men of prominent positions could go there in their suits and be like, whoa, what an interesting cultural display. Whereas, you know, if they did this in the levy district or something, they would get arrested. Basically a loophole. You can call it cultural. There was no internet. You couldn't find pornography anywhere, but you could go to and see. In the streets of Cairo. Titillation, as it were. No pun intended. (laughs) (laughs) Right. It was cultural. Right. You could use that argument. This was all the rage. In fact, you can go to YouTube and you can actually watch Little Egypt do her dance. Cool. There's videos of that. She was a sensation, and there was a song written by Saul Bloom, who was part of the World's Fair committee, and he just needed a tune that sort of sounded Eastern, and then he wrote this tune, which I believe we have a cut of. Mm-hmm. You've heard it a thousand places in cartoons and movies and whatnot, but this was the music that Little Egypt danced to. You sent me a link that was really fascinating. It's a YouTube piece, and this guy's basically a musicologist who breaks down the notes and the the structure uh, that explains why it's associated with Middle East and some of the history. It was it was fascinating, and we'll have that link on the site. And the thing about the song is, it's inundated the culture, and it definitely conjures up the desert and the Middle East. And well, I think also the reason you've heard it is because. Saul Bloom did not copyright it. So that's why there was a lot of sheet music on this tune. So Little Egypt performed as a 23-year-old woman. She performed in 1893. And as a 63-year-old woman, she performed at the Century of Progress in Chicago in 1933. Impressive. So there's your link. We always hear about Sally Rand, and Sally Rand was great with her fan dancers. But... I was astonished to hear that Little Egypt was performing 40 years after her sensational debut on the Midway Plaisance. So there's a two-star connection for us to wind up this episode. Absolutely. As always, thanks everybody for listening. We hope you'll tune in to our next episode on the Windy City Historians podcast, episode 22, which is going to be what, Chris? Oh, yes. Episode 22 is called the Pullman strike of 1894. Thank you for listening to the Windy City Historians Podcast.